0: Richard Harris was perhaps the greatest actor this country has ever produced. He was also a Grammy award-winning recording artist and a published poet. He also, however, had a fearsome reputation as a drinker and a womaniser. He once said of himself, I have always played a double game, one in public, the other in private. Well, towards the end of his life, in a series of extended interviews, he told his story to his friend, the writer Joe Jackson, who has condensed their conversations into his just-published book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. And Joe Jackson joins me now in studio. Morning, Joe.
1: Hello, Miriam.
0: Yeah, great read. Listen, you might begin by taking us back, if you will, to Richard Harris's early life in Limerick. Tell us a little about his family and where he grew up.
1: Uh, he was born and raised in Overdale, though an interesting thing he told me that hadn't been revealed before. And he was as interested in probing his own psychology and psyche as I was. As I was. And he said that he was one of... And I talked to his brother Noel, who's the, remaining, the only remaining sibling recently, and he didn't know this. Richard said he was the only member of the family who wasn't born at home because one of his sisters was ill, so he was born in an aunt's house. And he was left there when the mother came back home, obviously, to take care of the other children. He was one of eight. So he said, I wonder if that added to my restlessness, Mm. and because he bought houses and sold them and he he had houses and he lived in a hotel. So he says, nobody can know. But I wonder, was that part of my history and my psychology? So, as I say, he was part of a family of eight in Overdale in Limerick. And uh, he made some interesting observations to me the very first time we talked about this. I know a Dory song called uh, I Smiled and Smiled and Smiled to Please My Father. And it was about how she danced to catch the attention of her mother and smiled to please uh, please her father or whichever it was. And I said to him, do you feel you did a tap dance for your parents from an early age? And he picked up on it immediately. Mm -hmm. And he had the feeling that he was the favorite child and they all were when you're born. But when the next one comes along, you slip out of the spotlight because he always said he was the outsider in the family. So Noel says not so. But Richard felt that way. And if he felt Mm. that way, that's what he was shaped upon.
0: He was a good rugby player, but his career in rugby, it came to an end, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it came to an end because he got TB when it was rife in the country and he was confined to his room. And to me, the most interesting aspect of that is, and I think it was a truth he revealed to me the first time we talked, he lost faith in people because friends stopped calling. Now, he said he understood that they would say, oh, I've worked all week, I want to go out Saturday night, I don't want to sit with this sick guy. Mightn't we catch TB if we sit in his room? The windows never open. Mm -hmm. So slowly he felt all the friends disappear. And as they disappeared, he withdrew into himself. He discovered Stanislavski. He read Shakespeare. And that's where he had uh, performed on stage in in Kilkee, But he became serious about acting at that stage. And to go back to the previous point where he felt like the middle child Mm. left out, he admitted to me at one point that he believes he became an actor to get his mother and father to basically say, we have a child called Dickie that's him there. Look, up on stage, we're proud of him. So I think that was the part of the impulse that drove him forward. But he couldn't become the rugby player he longed to be. But being born and raised in Limerick, being a rugby player, winning a few matches, being part of what he called a tribal city, being a fighter, being, you know, a Parish against parish, them against any county outside, (laughs) them against every other country if they fought. That was a huge part of his fighting nature and people never got that. He He was a fighter from the moment before he left Ireland. So when he went to England and created Havoc, we could have said, well, what's news?
0: And isn't it true, Joe, that his love for rugby and his passion for monster rugby in particular, he is it true that he did say he'd have given up all his awards in acting if he could have played once for Ireland?
1: Well, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. When I heard him say that, right, yes. I remembered another quote he made where he was always criticised for giving up the theatre. And and in, particularly in London, it would be, why didn't you do Stratford? Why didn't you do Shakespeare? Why didn't you do legitimate theatre for your life? And Richard said to me a year before he died, he said it was easy for them to say That He said he was offered Oedipus Rex at Stratford and he said, I turned it down. He said, I would have gotten only 500 pounds a week. How am I going to keep my family alive on 500 pounds a week? So I think the idea of being a a rugby player for a specific amount of years, as opposed to getting 12 million for the Harry Potter movies (laughs) at the end, I think there's a bit bit of self-romanticising in that. I don't know that he, he loved it with a great passion. But I don't know that he would have given up the Hollywood and all the stuff for the, for for that.
0: He spoke to you, didn't he, Joe, about the death of his sister, Audrey, and I suppose how big a wrench do you think her death was in his young life and what happened to Audrey? Cancer. Okay. And how and old were they? Would she have been? Twenty one. Okay. Wow.
1: Donna Malley. She was she was engaged to Donahoe Malley at the oh, time. Fine. That had more of a rupture in Richard's psyche than even his sons realised or his family realised because I don't think he talked about it too often. You know I was the associate, you had uh, Jared Harris on and I Mm. I thank you for the comment you made on there about my journalism. Uh, But um, what they left out of the film, they had this thing where Richard said he loved drinking because Mm. he he enjoyed it and I wasn't running from anything. That was his Mm. line. And I said to him, look, Richard, a lot of us regard excessive indulgence in sex, drugs and drink as spitting in the face of death. He, he said that his behaviour patterns were dictated largely by his ever constant awareness of impending doom and death. And he said it was when his brother Jimmy died in 1996. And he said, I went back to the Mount St. Lawrence Cemetery in Limerick. And for the first time in 50 years, I went down into the family tomb. And he said that when Audrey died, when he was 15, he immediately got a terror, not just of death, and not even specifically of death, but of being buried under the earth. So he said that for the rest of his life, now think of this image of Richard Harris, the boozing brawler fighter who'd kill you with a headbutt, whenever he went to even the funeral of his mother or father, he hid behind a tree. He, de- he determined at the end that he would not be buried in the family tomb. And I know people in Limerick are upset by that. Someone recently told me that one of his old friends went to the tomb and said he's not there and cursed the family and said, why am I going? Richard didn't want to be buried in the family tomb. He wanted his ashes scattered, where I think it may have been in Kilkee and in the Bahamas. But that, that's, that's how profound an influence. He also, and it's another point you mentioned at the start, At that age of nine or 15, he wrote two beautiful poems about his parents and he hid these these away, which to me is his tendency to hide his softer, sensitive self. They're beautiful poems. One is looking at his mother on the phone and she's crying. So I said to him in in 2001, I said, why were they crying? And he said, if I'm remembering right, that was the night they got the news about uh, Audrey's, that she was going to die. So he that's how so that's how sensitive he was at fifteen. And that goes against the entire image. And oh, you you sorry, you quoted at the start, I lived a double life. Hmm. That that was a quote from his poetry book. And he was basically saying the double life is the public image you have of me, but the real me is in this book. And I read that book when he released it. And that's when I got the sense this man is way darker of heart than I've ever heard. Did you like him? I did, yeah. I mean, I also hated him. He was a very, you know, he he was, he could be hugely narcissistic, and he. I remember joking to him. I said, Richard, when he wanted me to go to the Bahamas and work on his book, I said, Richard, if I was in the Bahamas and I dropped dead on the beach walking with you, you'd say, you can't die yet, Joe, not until you finish my book, and he said I probably would. So there was that element of entitlement about him, and the way he he, he would get very angry if things didn't go his way. And he and I nearly came to blows, not just the first time we met, but subsequently when he'd try and coerce me into putting things in the Irish Times or whatever, and I'd just stand up against him. So there was that side of him, and he had an attitude to women that I found totally reprehensible. And I told him that from the outset. I said, how do you feel, you know, being regarded as a dinosaur? And he joked, I'm not that old. And I said, you are in terms of your attitude to women. And because I'd heard these quotes he made in the 70s, women should have thoughts and not be allowed to express them. But did he really believe that? Uh, there was a part of him because when I talked to Jim Webb about him after that... The singer-songwriter. Oh yeah. sorry, the, yeah, the yeah. singer-songwriter who had written MacArthur, Parker, Tramp, Shining yeah. and, and who had a cl- very close relationship with him for a number of years. He said, after the divorce with Liz, Richard was going through his misogynistic phase. And that's when he made those comments. Okay. So there was aspects of him at that level that I thought these are really ugly.
0: Was he proud of his performances as an actor? He began didn't he in the Queer Fellow. Is that is that That how his Queer That was was one of his breaks?
1: Yeah, that was one of his breaks in in UK theatre. But I mean, the 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 first film break was the Sporting Life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where everything coalesced, and he he was recognised nationally and internationally. And he won a Cannes Film Award. He was as Best brilliant Actor. in that. I think that's a staggering film. Mm. I looked at it again recently. But you ha- if you look at it again, I have an entire chapter on it. It's called The Sporting Life Revisited in the book. If you look at it again, and you realise now we know Lindsay Anderson, the director, was in love with him. There are a lot of resonances going on in that film that a lot people would not have noticed at the time. So, so it's fascinating to watch it now, knowing that history. But he was super. I think that was, and he said to me, he made seventy films, and he said at the end, he said, "Joe, I've done six films I'm proud of, and certainly the Sporting Life was one of them. He thought it was one of his best performances ever." Very proud of the field. Very proud of the field.
0: He said to you, didn't he, Joe, as well that? You know, he wants to shape the bull his own way, kind of as um, a mythical epic hero of King Lear proportions almost. Yeah,
1: yeah. That didn't make John B. Keane very happy, (laughs) you know, because Keane, and and there's a strong argument, and we had that about it, the play was originally about a community lying to cover up a murder. But Richard, because he had this fascination with playing King Lear, I, and I argued it with him, so I'm not saying anything I didn't put to his face. I said, You imposed King Lear on the field. So this, this accounts for a lot of the battles they were having while it was being made. So I think uh, Richard did see uh, the Bull McCabe as my King Lear.
0: Yeah, it well, worked. It s- worked brilliantly of course. It, it didn't well it? It,
1: to- it totally was, but there but Keane did say to him that he turned it into a one-person tour de forces as his goodbye to cinema and wasn't happy that he and and someone like pa- an, art, an actor like Patrick Bergham once said to me uh, Harris fractured the field with his ego because it, he wanted it to be all just about the bulls tensions. I don't agree with that. I think his sensitivity in that scene by the window and just and his power when he erupted There you have Richard Harris, the two sides of him on film.
0: You mentioned earlier to me, Joe, you know, his attitude to women that at times you deeply disliked it. And yet he was married twice to Anne Turkel and Elizabeth Reese Williams. And yet, you know, when he died from lymphatic cancer in 2002, you point out both women were at his bedside. So after all his womanising, he managed to have the two women he loved who loved him by his bedside when he died.
1: From what I know, I know Anne Turkell at first told the story that she flew over, she was there in time, and beside him she said, don't go yet. She since has given an interview to say that that was a bit of myth-making, that she turned up a day after. But the real point is your point. They both loved him deeply, and, and they were great friends. He said that they were, particularly Elizabeth, but Elizabeth and Anne, he said to me, Joe, don't ever doubt that I loved Anne Turkell and I loved Elizabeth Harris. And he, you know, he, the fact that Anne Turkell didn't have a daughter, which he longed for since 1959, when he, when, when Elizabeth, whenever it was when, when Elizabeth had her first child, he really wanted Anne to have the daughter he longed for, and she wanted to have a child for him. And uh, the fact that she didn't, I think, is what ended their relationship in the end. But they remained absolutely close, and Elizabeth was probably his greatest friend.
0: Now, the title of your book, Joe, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. We Mm. know about the first part. We've spoken about that. But talk to me about the second. Do you think, was he religious?
1: Yeah, this this is a big shock for many people. Again, as I said, even his brother, Noel Harris, said, I didn't know that about Richard. And I said, when Richard went through, when Richard made the field in Connemara and wherever, the locations, he went through an existential crisis. Like he was hitting 60, which is going to bring a lot of things into focus for any of us, you know. But he was out in the wilderness and he told me, he said, I would walk on my own in the rain. It was gorgeous. It was wonderful. And he said, I would hear. And he said, I was wondering, is this God talking to me, saying, you must come home. This is where you belong. You should not be anywhere else. And he'd say, I'd listen and then something else would pull me away. Now, I think that was the core schism in Richard Harris's soul. His soul was here in Ireland, his body moved elsewhere. And I put that to him and he said, you've got it in a nutshell. So he, he did become deeply religious again. And there was a great quote he gave me in 1990 where I asked him about, you know, do you believe in God? And he said, I would hate to come to the end of my journey and find out that what we all were searching for all along was a sense or a sight of God. It would really upset me if that hadn't happened. And he said he prayed daily, he pra- he prayed nightly. And 11 years later I asked him the same thing and he was more articulate about it. He said, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there's something up there that is kind and generous and welcoming. But he was absolutely deeply religious and in the end he believed that even his acting and the way he responded to classical music and poetry, it all had to come from a higher power. He said it can't come from just an evolution, an evolution of a spirit of a person in the jungle. He said it all comes from, I believe, I, I happen to believe it comes from God. So yeah. it, that surprises most people. Now, mm. for the last dozen years, he was on that, uh, that spiritual journey, yeah. trying to make his peace before he died.
0: As we come to the end of our interview, you got to know him so well, Joe. He trusted you, obviously, to write his book because he didn't trust anyone else to do it. Do you think in the end, and it sounds like a kind of a bland word, but do you think he was happy in the end of his life? Was he a happy person?
1: Yeah, I said that to him because that point where he said, you know, he was torn, his soul was in Ireland and his body was elsewhere. And so at the end, I said... Is that not still you? How could you be at peace if that's who you are? And he said, I've settled for that. He said, I've settled for being a dislocated spirit. And he also made, there was a few quotes they used in the film, though they were, they were not put in the context he made them, whereby he said, he's come to the realisation that you don't cast out your demons. You live with them. And he said they, they lived with him in the Savoy Hotel. And when they overpowered him, he took out a notebook. He was writing a play at the end of his life about his life. And he said, I write it all down into a play. But he, you know, there's a part of him that wanted peace, that said the only way you could you could find God is to find peacefulness. Or if you find God, you find peacefulness. There was another part of him eternally at war that wanted to stay at war because it fed his creativity.
0: Well, Joe Jackson, is a fascinating read. Your book is called Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. It's published by Merriam Press and it's available now. Thanks, Joe, for coming Thank in you and congratulating a great book.
1: Thank you very much, Miriam. I appreciate that. Thank you.